Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. And I'm Emma Hazlett, associate editor on the business desk in London. I'm Alona Ferber, spotlight editor in London. It's Thursday, the 16th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed this weekend after a bank run, raising fears of wider contagion in the banking system. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. We discuss the roots of this crisis and why it demonstrates the hypocrisy of libertarian tech bros. Then we turn to Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu's proposal to reform the judiciary have been met with some of the biggest protests in the country's history while violence rises in the West Bank. I'm here to demonstrate and to sound my voice against the dictatorship that they're established here in the name of the so-called law, judical reform. It's not a judical reform, it's a revolution that's making Israel go to full dictatorship. And I want Israel to stay a democracy. Just a reminder that you can send in your questions to us at newstatesman.com slash us or by tweeting at us. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So on Friday, the 10th of March, Silicon Valley Bank, a lender to some of the biggest names in the technology world, became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. US regulators worked through the weekend to try and contain some of the fallout of the collapse, shutting down Signature Bank, another bank in the tech sector. Emma, you work on a business desk at the New Statesman, so we've brought you on to discuss the background to this crisis. Can you just explain what happened to cause the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank? I mean, it's a long story, you know. It's got its roots in the pandemic. It's got its roots before the pandemic. It's, but I'll try and keep it short, right? So if you think about what was happening during the pandemic, like we were all living our lives online, okay? So we were all, you know, we were paying for those subscriptions. Like I bought a perfume subscription. You know, we were buying a lot of things online. Tech businesses were doing amazingly. Silicon Valley Bank, it's been around since the 80s, but it's focused entirely on tech businesses. Its website boded at one point that it it was offering banking to half of the US's venture-backed tech startups. 
and two and a half thousand venture capital firms. So it was, you know, it was the 16th biggest bank. After the pandemic, a lot of tech businesses had a lot of cash. And they did what we all do when we've got some money, they stuck it in the bank. So Silicon Bank had a a lot of cash sloshing around its coffers. If you think of a bank's balance sheet, there's kind of two sides. There is things that come in, things that go out, and its incomings were massive. So it had to find things to do with that money. You know, they don't just leave the money sitting there. They'll normally give it out in the form of loans tech companies didn't need loans. They were really cash rich. So what it did instead was it put its money into government bonds. Now, government bonds are and have been for years the safest possible investment. In the US, they're known as treasuries or T-bills. And SVB, which is what it's known as to its friends, put a huge amount of cash into these ultra-safe T-bill investments. But when interest rates started to rise, they declined in value. So the the tech industry at the same time was kind of floundering. You know, we've seen all the stuff about redundancies at Meta, which is the Facebook parent group. I mean, the mad stuff that's been going on at Twitter. Google's been making redundancies. They've all like loads of tech businesses have been making redundancies. So they all needed their cash back. They weren't making as much cash. So they needed to go into their deposits and use their cash to pay salaries and things like that. So in order to meet that demand, SVB suddenly had to sell all those T-bills. But because they were worth less, it sold them at a loss. On Thursday, it kind of admitted that that's what was going on, that it was struggling. There was suddenly a $42 billion run on the bank. And that was kind of compounded for SVB because Silicon Valley is a small place. Everyone knows everyone else. So you have people like Peter Thiel, who's like one of the biggest venture capitalists, saying to all the businesses that he invested in, we think you need to get your money out of SVB right now and move it. It created a massive kind of snowball effect. And by Friday, an agency in the US called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had taken over the bank. A lot of the deposits were uninsured, meaning that the bank's clients might not get them back. That risked what one Silicon Valley tech guy called an extinction level event for US startups. Basically, lots of startups needed to pay their staff and couldn't because they couldn't access their money. On Sunday, you had another similar bank, Signature Bank, also quite small, but it focused on law firms and real estate companies. Similar fate, similar stuff happened. So on Sunday, the FDIC said, right, that's it. We're going to insure all deposits. Everybody's going to get their deposits back. It was a pretty unusual situation, like normally most deposits aren't insured in that way unless there is specific insurance. So yeah, I mean, kind of all was well that ended well, but it does demonstrate that like some of these banks are not as well capitalized as we thought. Thanks so much. That's really clear. Can you also walk us through what the response from US and also UK regulators has been? Because I think there was also a UK subsidiary of SVB, which which was worrying the government in the UK. And what steps have they taken and what was their reasoning behind the decisions that they've made? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, the FDIC and you know people like Janet Yellen, even Joe Biden, stepped in to say, look, we're going to make sure that everything's okay. Don't worry about your money. We're going to make sure you've got access to your money. There was a UK 
based arm of Silicon Valley Bank, which was last year, it was ring fenced, right? So its deposits hit a certain level. And in the UK said, right, you know, if you've got deposits that are that high, we need you to be a separate entity from the US one. So that was good timing. I think regulators and people like the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, central banks had flashbacks, had like bad flashbacks to the year 2008, when suddenly there were loads of bank bailouts going on. They moved incredibly fast to prevent this stuff. Like it took three days essentially to protect billions of dollars of, of depositors' cash. <laughs> you didn't see that kind of speed in 2008. Um, so they were definitely spooked. In the UK, they, they managed to sell SVB for one pound to HSBC. That was announced on Monday morning. I mean, honestly, like, you know, because it was a separate entity, SVB in the UK was pretty well capitalized. It's a pretty good going concern. Actually, I think HSBC probably has got a pretty good bargain. Like it's it shares slid on Monday. I think it was down about 5% on Monday. It was about down about 2% on Tuesday. So its investors aren't ultra impressed by what it's done. It said it's going to put another 2 billion into the into SVB. But I think generally like it's it's not a bad deal for HSBC. I think there's been a big move to prevent any the kind of economics wonks call contagion going on, which is very positive for the banking sector. There's still risks. I think interest rates dropping, we, we haven't seen the last of the risk of that. But generally, you know, government stepped in pretty fast. And obviously, I think a lot of people kind of hear uh, the biggest bank to fail since 2008, and they get quite spooked and quite worried. Clearly, a big part of the government and regulatory response to this was trying to contain contagion, as you said. How successful does that look at this point? Are there wider risks still, or has governments and regulators really managed to contain the fallout? So most banks, firstly, we've got to look at the size of SVB, right? It's It had assets worth $209 billion, um, which seems like a lot. It's a lot to me. But, you know, if you look at JP Morgan, its assets are worth $3 trillion. So in the grand scheme of things, it was pretty small. Most banks in Europe, in the US, are stress tested every year. They're forced to hold a certain amount of capital to avoid this kind of situation. SVB was, because it was specifically focused on one sector, it meant it was regulated slightly differently. And, you know, there is still a risk that a number of small or regional US banks go out of business. If that happened, it could present a higher systemic risk to the US, which obviously the US sneezes, everyone else catches a cold. But it's quite an unlikely situation, especially after the steps the US government has taken. So yes, there is a risk. It's not massive, though, which is positive. Okay, that's reassuring to hear. And you've written a great piece for the New Statesman website in which you skewer the hypocrisy of libertarian tech bros. Can you just run us through the argument that you made there and what this tells us about, I guess, the kind of prevailing political attitudes among a lot of people in Silicon Valley regarding <laughs> regulation, which they hate when it inconveniences them, but suddenly they beg for the protection of when, when they need yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley is like your most libertarian place. And you only have to look at how Elon Musk has been behaving at Twitter. There is no such thing as employment law. To to kind of understand their attitude to law and regulation, you know, every now and then, especially the, in the EU, 
someone will try and bring in a new rule that kind of, you know, forces tech companies to regulate how they, you know, how old people are who come on their platforms or, you know, try and prevent trolling or try and prevent, I don't know, misogyny or racism. And the tech, the tech companies hit out. They complain vociferously. They want a world in which everyone's free to say anything. They're all about freedom of speech. Peter Thiel, again, I've mentioned him already. He's one of the biggest VCs in Silicon Valley, if not the biggest VC. He was the first investor in Facebook. He's one of the founders of PayPal. Like There are very few big name tech companies he hasn't had a finger in the pie of. He is like an arch libertarian. He has his own special foundation that is committed to freedom. He is rumored to have bought up vast tracts of New Zealand so that he can just go and kind of go and live there in a like stateless condition. He's also <laughs> one of my favorite stories is that he's invested at least half a million dollars into something called the Seasteading Institute, which wants to essentially let everybody create their own tiny countries at sea and that they can kind of run run it all according to their own laws. <laughs> if he wasn't so rich, he might be viewed as a little bit mad. But, you know, he was one of the first people to, you know, recommend that his startups take their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. You've got a guy called David Sachs, who's like great mates with Teal and Elon Musk, who's complained heavily about regulation. He's complained heavily about bank bailouts in 2008. He was tweeting, where is, where is Jay Powell? Where is Janet Yellen? Stop this crisis now. Like he was kind of begging for the government to get involved in this situation so it all just felt quite hypocritical. Obviously, libertarianism is, an, is a nice idea for them. When the shit hits the fan, libertarianism is, is not such a big deal and the government stepping in and helping is suddenly very important. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for coming on. And much as I do enjoy talking to you, I hope we won't have to have you back on to talk about the wider fallout. Yeah, I've been saying that. Oh, yeah, it's all fine. It's all contained. <laughs> well, hopefully you're right, and I don't have to come back to this. <laughs> but for the time being, let's go. Let's go a bit further afield and go to Israel. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week. That's twelve weeks for just twelve pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Where half a million Israelis took to the streets in the 10th consecutive week of protests against plans by Benjamin Netanyahu's government to overhaul the country's judicial system, according to protest organizers. President Isaac Herzog has urged the government to take the judicial overhaul legislation off the table, but Netanyahu has vowed to press on. Alona, we're really happy to have you back here. We've had you on the podcast before to talk about these proposals and how many people view them as anti-democratic. Can you just briefly run us through what these proposals are and also whether Netanyahu has made any concessions or kind of moderated them in recognition of the really massive movement against them, which seems to be like relatively unprecedented in recent Israeli history? Yes, definitely. I think it's important to understand that this is maybe the biggest political crisis in Israel's short history. And for 10 weeks now, you've had thousands of people going out on the streets every week across the country. And so 300,000 were out you know, in cities around and towns around Israel on the weekend. You've got, we'll talk about this a bit more later, I think, but you've got reservists from the army refusing to train. You've got so many different groups, lawyers, diplomats, academics, you name it, Jewish diaspora groups saying this, this isn't a good idea, including, as you mentioned, President Herzog. In Israel, the president is a sort of more of a ceremonial position ahead of state. And then, of course, there's a prime minister too. So he's trying to get the two sides together. The coalition that's doing this is led by Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest serving prime minister, who was out and back again twice in his career. He, It's important to understand that he is on trial for criminal charges of fraud, breach of trust and bribery. His coalition was sworn in December, and it's the most right-wing and religious in Israel's history. And the efforts to do this judicial overhaul come from the Prime Minister's party. So his Justice Minister, Yariv Levine, is the guy. He's, he was working with a libertarian right-wing think tank with the proposals called the Kohelet Forum. And the idea is, what the party says, is that the Israel's judiciary is ultimately anti-democratic. It goes against the wishes of an elected government. It accuses the judiciary of judicial activism, the High Court getting involved in decisions that government should be able to just push through and not have any push against. 
And it's really important to understand in this context how significant this would be. There, there are people who are pushing this for ideological reasons. There are people who think that Israeli checks and balances in, in the political system need to be better. But for Netanyahu, it's really staying out of prison. His trial is ongoing. He doesn't want to go to jail. He has maybe even convinced himself that he's being politically persecuted. And he's certainly been speaking in those terms for years, trying to undermine the judicial system. So the kinds of reforms that are under discussion, so there are lots of them. Um, and Yariv Levin is trying to push them through by the 2nd of April when Parliament breaks for Passover. So they include things like making judicial appointments a matter of political control. They include putting an immunity clause into legislation. So basically you can, this is a really great idea, you can get some legislation and make it immune from oversight of the high court or Supreme Court. So basically you can just, you can almost, yeah, you can basically make legislation immune to oversight. And actually the first reading of that bill was passed early on Tuesday. So basically that, if that goes through the next two readings, that would give legislation immunity against judicial review. There's another thing called the override clause, where basically if the Supreme Court doesn't unanimously make a decision, the Knesset with a majority of, the Knesset is Israel's parliament, with a majority of one can override any Supreme Court decision. And the majority of one is all that a coalition needs to govern. So what it would mean essentially for this government is it would have an, a veto pretty much automatically on legislation. And in terms of compromise, no, there hasn't been any compromise. It's really astonishing when Yariv Levine first announced 10 weeks or so ago that this was happening. Since then, the government has really frantically been pushing through this stuff. He's saying, I will, I'm open to dialogue, but he doesn't want to stop the speed of the reforms. And on the other side, you've got lots of groups saying, like Herzog saying, we've got to come together, we've got to talk, because it's getting to a point where it's getting close to, to sort of violence. Tensions are really high. And even the Kohelet forums, this is the libertarian right-wing think tank that was the brainchild with Yariv Levine behind these reforms, has put out a statement last week, I think, saying, hey, actually, this won't pass without a compromise. There needs to be a compromise. So there are people who are speculating whether was the thing that happened here that basically the coalition said, okay, the way that we get this done is we do, we go really big and then we get through what we want kind of thing. Do they actually want all of this reform? And there are lots of other little bits in here as well. Something to mention, for example, and this is very, when you look at this, you might be open mouthed to hear this. I don't know. It shocks me every time I look at this stuff, but there's a bill to stop a prime minister. They basically want to stop the high court from being able to make a prime minister recuse themselves from activities because of conflicts of interest. Because basically that could protect Netanyahu from being told, hey, you can't reform the judicial system because you're on trial. That's maybe there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. So there's a lot in there as well that's trying to protect Netanyahu, essentially. But yeah, there's been no compromise from the government so far. And yet, and yet, discussion of these reforms and that they've prompted among many, many Israelis. Um, I've seen the the dictatorship uh, pop a lot. So for Yuval Noah Harari, who's the author of Sapiens, uh, Haaretz, uh, the newspaper with the headline, quote, this is definitely a coup. Israel is on its way to becoming a dictatorship. Are, are these fears justified? Like if these reforms pass, will Israel kind of definitively have given up on on democracy? It depends who you ask. If you ask Yariv Levine, the justice minister, he would say, 
Absolutely not. We are making Israel more democratic. We're stopping the, the judicial activism of the kind of the left wing Supreme Court. There has been um, an open letter from a group of right wing academics defending the reforms, saying we need better checks and balances. The court has overreached. But there are lots and lots of people also who say the opposite. And what they say is, if you pass this stuff and you've got the, you know, if you look at the other bits of legislation that this government is also trying to push through, for example, there's, there's something that came through yesterday. They're trying to amend a law that stops Israeli settlers from going back to some settlements in the West Bank that were evacuated or cleared, dismantled in 2005. So this government, which is, as I said, very right-wing and religious, has a very particular worldview and agenda. You've got, for example, parties in there with various interests that want to be able to get through legislation. For example, the ultra-Orthodox parties want to make sure that the secular government won't make ultra-Orthodox Jews go to the army, for instance. But you've got lots of kind of interests there, and it doesn't seem like it's particularly protective of democracy right? Because you've got a position where you're going to have a government that is very right wing, quite religious, with no oversight of legislation. And members of that coalition who very openly have Jewish supremacist views. Yeah. If you were interviewing Yariv Levine, he would say, and maybe it's completely disingenuous, or maybe he believes it, but he would say, or if you interviewed the head of the Kohelet Forum, they would say, this will absolutely make Israel more democratic. Because nobody votes for these judges. But obviously, you know, Noah Harari or any kind of academic scholar looking at political philosophy, how can you talk about liberal democracy when you've got a politically appointed judiciary and a government that can override any decisions of a higher court? Yeah. I think one, one question is either either they really believe that this is more democratic or they're lying. And what they want is to be more autocratic. That's the question. What do they really believe? And I think for Netanyahu, very clearly, if you talk to somebody who supports Netanyahu, he has the very dedicated followers, um, they wouldn't say he's just doing this to stay out of prison. They would say the left-wing establishment has been trying to put this guy in prison on charges that are trumped up and shouldn't exist. He's the best leader we've ever had. But the reality is that you've got a leader who, instead of resigning quietly to fight his day in court, has insisted on kind of going back into power and then trying to break the system apart so he can stay out of prison. That's what I would say. But yeah, it's, it's a very scary moment. And I think the fact that you can see the army Ido, you know Israel pretty well. The arm, and for people who don't, the army is as establishment as you can get. There is nothing more establishment in Israel than the army. Israeli military officials go into politics. It's true, but the army isn't exactly political. It's very status quo. It doesn't rebel against the government. The fact that you've got reservists openly saying this is dangerous and we are not going to train, we're not going to, is huge. And I think what's really interesting is from the government, you're hearing this stuff around, you know, the government, or from the right, maybe you're hearing this is splitting the country in two between right and left, it's dangerous. But it's not exactly a right and left split. It's a split between the government and the rest of the country. You know, there are plenty of people at those protests who aren't necessarily left-wing, but they don't want to see the country falling apart uh, over this or a government without any checks on its power. Yeah, um, well, you... <laughs> Yeah, this to ask you about. Um, can we talk a bit more about the about these? So, for example, um, I think something like nearly half the reservist pilots from the uh, Air Force's 69th Squadron training exercise this month against uh, against the government. Um, we see as is a kind of political statement, and also uh, has quite significant um, security implications. Could opposition from, as you said, kind of establishment? Uh, respected part of society. Could that help shift things? 
we're not in a kind of normal situation. You've got 10 weeks of people increasingly go out in the streets. You've got the president saying things like, this is terrible for our economy. You've got kind of business leaders saying, you know, the shekel is weakening. It's going to ruin our economy. All, all of these, all these very established voices coming out and saying how much of a problem this is. And yet the government is keeping up the pace of this stuff and not saying, oh, okay, hold on, we, we need to slow this down and back down. They're saying, we'll talk, but we're passing this stuff through kind of thing. So one of the opposition members, Benny Gantz, who was an IDF chief of staff and became a kind of a political leader against Netanyahu, he's been really outspoken about this too. He is very kind of centrist establishment, centrist in the Israeli sense establishments. The coalition are really hell-bent on doing this. And what they've done is people are out protesting. They've been much more... So in, in you remember in 2011, there was the Arab Spring and in Israel, there were lots of protests too that year. And there was a kind of a big, lots of social protests in the middle of Tel Aviv. There, were, there was like a tent city where people lived four months protesting against rising costs of living and all sorts of things. And at the time, the government mostly just let people do it pretty much blow off steam. In this in, in this case, now with these protests, the government has been arresting people, using water cannons and sort of like trying to stop the protests much more. You don't see, there isn't, you don't see any signs of the government's being influenced by that. And in fact, I mean, you'll remember there was this really horrendous incident in the West Bank where after a terror attack by a Palestinian, a group of settlers went to the village of Hawara and terrorized the village. It was really scary. People were calling it a pogrom. And speaking after that, Netanyahu said, this is bad. And he also said, these guys are bad. And the protesters in Tel Aviv, you know, about, we won't have chaos from either of them. So he's tried to paint them as the same, which doesn't imply that he's going, oh, wait, hang on, if the army, if you've got the security establishment saying this is a problem, I need to be, I need to maybe listen. Yeah. And again, sets me up very nicely. So the next thing I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you about we didn't practice this, by the way. This is all natural. Yeah. Obviously, in parallel with this crisis within Israeli society, there's also been an escalating spate of violence in the occupied Palestinian territories. As you said, there was what I think some army officials called a pogrom by Israeli settlers against Palestinians in a village in the West Bank. There's been violence against Israelis. I think something like 40 Israelis have died in attacks by Palestinians over the past year, and Israeli forces have killed more than 200 Palestinians. And this is, I think, some of the worst violence for years. Can you just run us through the situation in the West Bank and also maybe give us your view on whether there's any connection to what the government is doing within Israel proper? Is there a kind of link between the political colour of the government in Israel and the violence in the West Bank? Yeah, it's a tricky question. People use the phrase cycle of violence, right, when they talk about Israel. And some people say, it sounds as if it's just a thing that happens of its own accord. And it's a bit of a misleading term in a way. And I would say also there is the violence is constant. And like you said, there's been, I think last year, there were more Palestinians killed by Israelis. I saw in one statistics that since 2006 or something, you've got really high levels of violence at the moment. Like you said, also dozens of Israelis killed too. And in terms of a connection with what's happening within Israel, I think the fact that there is a government with members who are on the far right, pro-settlement, they believe in a greater Israel, they're Jewish supremacist. The finance minister, Betzalel Smotrich, who is also in the defense ministry and is in one of the parties, which is in that bit of the political spectrum. So that's a nationalist, Zionist, religious. 
And he said publicly at an event, it was, I think it was a Haaretz event, the Liberal Daily, he was asked about Hawara and he said something about it should be wiped out or something. That's not a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing. And then, of course, he denied that he'd said it, but it's there. This is a member of the governing coalition talking about a Palestinian village in the West Bank. So the message that you're getting from the government doesn't sound like a kind of let's get to the table and talk and peace and all those things. And the government's approved settlement expansion. You know, this law is making its way through the Knesset that would allow Israelis to return to evacuated West Bank settlements. That is pretty astonishing, isn't it? And I also want to read you a quote from, so after what happened at Hawala, which was really shocking, I think. I think for some people it wasn't shocking, for a lot of people it was. You saw Israelis who are quite mainstream using the word pogrom, which is quite an extreme word to use. If you're not on the, very far on the left, when you might use that word more easily. But a member of Otsmayudit, which means Jewish power, that's one of the parties in the coalition. So this guy is the chairman of the Knesset's National Security Committee. He's called Zvika Fogel. After the riot, he backed the rioters, the Jewish settlers who went into this place and burnt houses and... This is what he said. He said, a closed, burnt Hawara, that's what I want to see. That's the only way to achieve deterrence. After a murder like yesterday's, he was referring to this terror attack, we need burning villages when the IDF doesn't act. So that's a member of a party in the governing coalition. It's just astonishing. This isn't a kind of an extremist on the sidelines, an extremist in government. So I think in terms of whether there's a link with the judicial reform, there's a link to the way that the government is conducting itself, the messages it's sending, its makeup. There's nothing that's coming out of this government that is saying, we want peace, really. We haven't heard that for years anyway. But what we're hearing now is something that's so in the opposite direction. And in November, it was quite interesting, the head of that party, Itamar Bengvir, who's also extremist Jewish supremacist, he now He's minister for home security. He controls the police. In November, a soldier in the West Bank was jailed. He was, I don't remember exactly what happened or where he was, but he basically was violent and said something like, Ben Gvir will sort things out here, as in in the West Bank. So he was saying, this is in November, and this was before the coalition was sworn in. So he was saying, this extreme right Jewish supremacist politician who will soon be in government, he'll sort everything out over here. So that's the kind of atmosphere we have. And that's what the government is enabling at the moment. What will happen, though, if the reform goes through is things like legalizing settlements, that legalizing outposts will be much easier because the Supreme Court won't be able to interfere in those decisions. And so that there is a link. But I think in the short term, it's more about that general message. Thanks so much to Emma and Alona for coming on today to talk about these very much non-specialist uh, subjects for me and for the other usual hosts. Just a reminder that you can send your questions in for us to answer at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. That's all we have time for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode. Megan will be speaking to Dina Nayeri about the uprising in Iran and how Western policies harm refugees. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.